Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's exciting to go behind the scenes of a popular show, and today we'll get to do just that with one of the best-loved programs in all of public media. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is NPR's weekly hour-long quiz program. That description is so deceptively simple, because while true, it does not capture the wit, the zany humor, or good feeling you get from listening. Peter Sagal has a lot to do with the show's appeal. He has been hosting Wait Wait since 1998, And he'll be in Atlanta hosting a live show on March 3rd at the Fox Theater. He joins me now via Zoom. Peter, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, Lois, it is always such a joy to talk to you. How are you? The last time I saw you was before the world shut down. I know. And an eventful few years, to say the least. But joyous for us in that our son got married. And oh, Mazel tov. thank you. We have a grandson. Oh my goodness. Yes, little Max. Max is an excellent name. I, I am all for antique names coming back into play. I want more Maxes and Isaacs and Jacobs and I met a gentleman today named Leander, and I'm all for oh. this. More cool names. And and I'm, I'm sure you're quelling like nobody's business. Quelling, but that takes me to you, my friend. We last spoke yes. in 2018 when you were on tour for your book, The Incomplete Book of Running, and you and your wife welcomed a baby in November, Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you. Although I should say, just to be clear, it's November of 2020, a pandemic project. People <gasps> say, what'd you do during the pandemic? I made a human. Well, I didn't actually do it, but my wife did. But I watched <laughs> and occasionally adjusted her pillows. Uh, yes, we have a little baby boy named Elliot, named for his great-grandfather, uh, speaking of bringing back antique names. And uh, he's a delight, and he's tearing everything up, and fortunately, he's asleep right now. Otherwise, you'd hear him in the background. Okay, when did he start sleeping through the night? Oh, my gosh, has he? I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Uh, I think I think in general, he's been doing that for a good three months now, so my good. wife is much happier and much more alert, and, uh, you know, it's all a good thing. It's a, a good there's thing. a lot to be said for parents who are not sleep-deprived. Yes, it's it, everything seems a little easier when you've gotten a few hours of sleep in a row. Yeah, but I think, you know, the creator knew what he, she was doing, making babies so adorable because oh, Lord. otherwise yes. you would return them for merchandise credit, don't you think? I'd, I'd put them out on an ice flow, I believe, is the traditional <laughs> solution to colic. But no. Did you know, this is one of my favorite bits of trivia. Do you know why? cartoon characters and like Disney movies, Pixar movies, all of them have such unusually large eyes. That's like a thing that they all have. If you ever look at like, you know, go look at the Encanto, the movie of the moment, all the characters have unusually large eyes. That's part of a cartoon look. And the answer is, is because we humans are programmed by evolution 
to look at large eyes proportional to a face and feel affection because that's one of the things that keeps us from eating our babies. There you are. (laughs) Well, I know I always marvel at Charles Schultz and how he got it right. Yes. Sketching toddlers because the heads are large and the shoulders are still narrow. Babies are such a joy. Well, they are. We got to move on, I guess. We do. I know. Or we could just talk about your grandchild and my son for the rest of the hour and to hell with whatever anybody else needs. What do you say? What do you say? I'd love it. I hope one day they could have a play date, but God knows. Oh, that'd be exciting. In this universe. No, apparently not. Peter, our listeners are eager for your return to Atlanta with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The show here is being billed as one of the longest curtain delays in history. (laughs) Almost exactly two years, almost to the day. As your listeners may remember, specifically those who had tickets, we were there at the Fox Theater. Uh, We were all excited. We love coming to Atlanta. We love playing the Fox, one of, if not the most beautiful theater in America. And we were all set to go. Our guest was going to be big boy and we were going to have a lot of fun and we we're going to do it into, for a packed house. And then it was the Wednesday night that people remember that everything seemed to come to a head. That was the night that the NBA announced that they had infections and that they were going to shut down or at least keep out fans from the stadiums. That was the night that our president at the time gave a speech meant to reassure all of us that really went very poorly. <laughs> And we all, we, every, sort of the entire country came to the conclusion that we came to that very morning of the show, which is we can't do these large events right now. So we had, I believe everybody got the message via uh, the radio station that we simply couldn't have an audience that night. We did the show on the stage of the voluminously empty uh, Fox. And if you think it seems large when you're sitting there, imagine how large it feels when there's nobody in it. And that was March of 2020, and we are coming back. It's going to be a delight. It's, you know, as you say, it's, we had a little delay. We had to hold the curtain for two years, but we're just that much more excited to do the show. <laughs> and you had a baby in the meantime. And I had a baby, so you know. Now, for those who have never attended a taping, what's different about being in a live audience for Wait, Wait?, uh, well, you get to see how incredibly good looking we all are. There you go. And I don't want to oversell it. I don't want to oversell it, but it is quite exciting. It's, I think members of your audience were old enough to remember Chippendales, the male <laughs> troop of dancers, a little bit like that. No, it's not. I, you, you get to find out what we look like and what we all, why we're all in radio rather than other more lucrative forms of broadcasting. I think it's, you know, I obviously have never attended a Wait Wait show. Uh, so I don't really know. But what people tell me is that, A, you get to hear a lot more material than we broadcast. It's not unusual for us to record up to two hours of material, and which gets cut down into like the 54 minutes, if you include all the breaks, that makes it wait, wait show on, on the air. So that means a lot more wait, wait for your money. I can promise you that. And also, I mean, one of the things that people have said to us over the years is that the reason the show has some appeal is because whatever the level of our comedy and our insight, but it, whatever we're doing, it sounds like we're having a really good time. And the secret to that I've discovered over two decades in broadcasting, the secret to creating that effect is to actually have a good time. It is a great time. And what people tell me is when they come see our show that they feel a part of it. Just like when you're listening on the radio, you sort of feel like you're invited. Well, you're genuinely invited. Come on down. We have a lot of fun. Truly. You do impart that welcome. So how did taping during the pandemic affect this show? Well, first of all, I should express great gratitude that we were able to continue to do it uh, over two years in which a lot of people couldn't do their work or lost their jobs or it was, it was changed in such a way as to become much more difficult. We were very lucky. Uh, we were able to continue doing Wait, Wait. We did it just like everybody did everything this last two years remotely over Zoom. And we had an advantage that I think some of our peers, if I can call them that, in the uh, comedy news satire space, <laughs> did not have, which is that if you're, say, to take someone I admire tremendously, Stephen Colbert, 
and you're used to playing in front of a live audience like we are who laughs at your jokes uh, and you have to go do it yourself well that's even more difficult because he's doing a monologue and any of your audience members you lois know that an audience in front of you a live audience tells you so much the the feedback is constant in terms of are, are they enjoying it do they find it funny basic question do they want you to stop doing what you're doing and do something else do they kind of dislike what you're doing but are kind of secretly enjoying it and they want you to keep going just a little bit longer are they being charitable are they getting angry are they enjoying being angry all of this stuff comes across to you in like a wave of information when you're on stage in front of an audience so stephen colbert poor guy has to do that with no feedback whatsoever and in those early days of watching stephen colbert and other people in his in his line you could see their desperation looking into the glass lens of a silent camera and saying, is that funny? Did you enjoy that? Are you having a good time? <laughs> yes. It was tough. Trevor Noah did a beautiful job too. Yeah, uh, many of them did. Some of them took longer to adjust than others. Trevor Noah and Samantha Bee and Stephen Colbert. And they, they all ended up doing a fine job. It took them a longer time. We had longer time than us, I should say. And that's because we have this advantage. This isn't a, a show, as everybody knows, in which I'm the only guy speaking into the microphone. Uh, we are an ensemble show. And uh, we have a group of people who we invite to do the show with every week. And so thus, we had each other, right? Uh, we, you know, whenever I'm doing my show, I'm not just talking to the audience, but I'm also talking to the three panelists of the week and Bill Curtis and our special guest. And that gave us somebody to talk to, somebody to stand in for the audience. So we just tried to amuse each other, which frankly is generally speaking, the only thing we ever do. So we were able to continue doing that, even though it wasn't as much fun as having a live audience. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is Peter Sagal, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The quiz show will be in Atlanta at the Fox Theater this Thursday, March 3rd. At a public radio conference I attended some years ago, your producer and benevolent overlord, Doug Berman, once co-hosted a session titled Three Little Radio Shows and How They Grew. And in that session, he explained how the best shows are those which had the time to evolve and respond to an audience, like what you're saying about that performance being a team sport. Yeah. Peter, in your 24 years as host and time as a panelist before yeah. that, what is most remarkable about how Wait, Wait has evolved? Well, my immediate answer is what's remarkable to me, and I mean this in kind of a compliment, is that it hasn't evolved that much. And what I mean to say is we started doing the show. If you were to go back and listen to our original show, it's very similar, although not the same, to what we do now. It's a panel quest show. We've got a panel. We've got people calling in. We play some of the same games. And what we learned to do over the years in this constant feedback with the audience and with ourselves, you know, what, what, what do we feel good about doing? What was great about that show? One of the things we still do 24 years later is we start every week with a little review, a post-mortem, if you will, of the last week's show. What did we do right? What, what was great? What wasn't so great? What, what, what's a mistake we keep making? What's a mistake we just made and we shouldn't do it again? Is that we've spent a lot of time working very hard to be consistent. Mm -hmm. And that's why I mean it as a compliment. There's one thing, and you mentioned Doug Berman, who, as you know, founded the show, created the show, and serves as our benevolent overlord and, and chief kibitzer. Mm -hmm. And I learned something very powerful from Doug Berman. It's something I needed to learn because I didn't come from radio. I came from the theater where I was a playwright, where among other things, I was never on stage. I was always backstage, right? And I had to relearn some of my expectations, or rather put aside some expectations of what was required of me and learn some new ones. And this is the primary one, that people have a particular relationship to radio and to the people they hear on the radio. And you may listen to people on the radio because they're talking about something you're interested in, or you may be interested in 
their topics or their sense of humor. All those things are very, very important. You need to work very hard on them. But what they really want to do is they want to spend time with somebody they like. Because radio, as you know, Lois, you've been in it for God knows how long, is, is a very intimate medium. Think about where people listen. They listen in the cars when it's just them. They listen in their showers, in the bathrooms, in the kitchen when they're working. A lot of times people are listening to the radio by themselves, listening to another human being speaking. It's a very intimate connection. And you really want to have to spend time with that people. So that person or people in our case. So the thing that I would say that has changed, I hope, certainly in my case, from those very first few years, is I learned that it wasn't important or as important that I be clever, that I have the hottest take, the sharpest joke, the zippiest one-liner. Those are all useful and important but that I learned to present myself as somebody on the radio that people would want to spend time with. And that really goes for everything we do. All, all the people on our show, all their panelists, new and old, they're very funny, they're very charming, they're very talented, but we really like them because we like to spend time with them. And we're hoping that by putting them in the air, you will too. So that's really, I mean, that's the thing. We, we haven't changed much, but the thing that I think we've worked on is we've tried to be over the years, a place where people can come. And even though we don't know your name uh, yet, oh, you still feel at home with friends. That's what we've worked on for these two decades. Indeed, and many of us feel that the panelists on Wait, Wait are friends. Yeah. Faith Saley will be yes. coming down with you. She is Atlanta's own and a special friend. Of course she is. Who else? We actually have a wonderful panel. In addition to Faith, we have Joel Kim Booster. Joel is a remarkably talented young comedian and actor who I, I have a feeling is about to be a lot more well-known than he is right now. He's got a movie that he's written and starring in that's coming out, I think, this year. So definitely you want to be able to say that you saw Joel Kim Booster live before he became really big. And Hari Kondabolu, who's oh. a relatively new panelist, about four years in, I guess, in a 24-year-old show, four years counts as relatively new, but also great and very funny and insightful and serious and smart in a way that, uh, that I find delightful. Oh yeah, whip smart. Faith told us how she preps for this show, which is astonishing that many human can absorb that much news in such a limited amount of time. I wondered with the new panelists who have been delightful, is there an audition process? How do you decide who gets to play? There really isn't. We tried that. This is, we tried that years ago. We tried to do like mock shows in which we'd have people come on and pretend to be in the show. And we discovered it doesn't really work. That really, our show is very odd. It's got just this odd format that's not quite like anybody else. There are other panel shows, but those panel shows tend not to have the listener interactions that we have. There are shows which are panel funny discussions about the week's news, but those shows tend to have writers and people prepare material. We're all spontaneous. So the people we're looking for have a particular set of skills. We look around for them. We tend to focus on people who have a performance background because there is so much of an element of performance to our show. So most of our panelists are either comedians or people who are used to performing in front of an audience. Uh, although there often is in the case of, say, Maeve Higgins, she's also a very serious person and a writer. Great writer. A fabulous writer, indeed. She's a new book out. Yeah. But basically, the, the question is, can they come on our show, our very weird environment, where a lot of times, you know, you're, you're showing up at a party where everybody else knows each other, right, which can be awkward, and whether or not they can, within the very weird vagaries of our format, manage to somehow get their personality across. And being able to do that has nothing to do with your talent or your, your, your vividness as a performer. It just has to do whether you can fit into our bizarre little thing. We've had amazingly talented people come on the show, brilliant people, a far smarter and funnier than I am, but it just didn't work for them. There's something weird about our format. They just couldn't find a way to get, to get in there and express themselves in our thing. And that's fine. So the problem is, is that there's really no way of knowing until you come on and try it. You were talking about what you've learned 
as a host over the years, I love your intros. Do you have time to craft your own comments? Uh, when you say intros, you mean into the show, like, hi, thanks, Bill, and so on and so forth, and I introduce the show, you mean then? Introduce the show, your guests. Yeah, that, that's me. I, there are certain things that I write during, I, that I sort of have always been in charge of writing, and that's one of them, I, I introduce the show. Because I wondered how much of your writing is in the script. Well, it's an interesting question. I am blessed that I have working with me a very talented staff, some very funny people, some of whom have dual roles. Uh, we have producers who also write, some of whom are just writers, like people like Peter Gwynn or Vinnie Thomas. And I have the extraordinary benefit of having those funny people behind me giving me really funny things to say on the show. And that's great. Um, however, I won't say I'm the head writer, I'm not. I will say I'm the last writer. So I'll contribute to the show, I'll write jokes, I'll, I'll kibitz, I'll suggest stories. Everybody will do amazing work. Everybody will write very funny takes and very funny lines and very funny jokes. And then I take it and I go over it one last time to make sure that it all sounds vaguely like me, you know? One thing that my poor, my poor staff knows is I can't, sell something as funny if I don't really think it's funny, people can tell. So I just have to be a little arbitrary sometimes. However, at the same time, and, and like I said, I want to give all credit to my writers. They are amazing and funny and charming and the show wouldn't be an eighth as good without them. Uh, the show is also very improvisational and genuinely so. So we go through this process with my, my friends and we create this script, we rewrite it, we rewrite it, we, we, we punch up jokes, we create jokes, we come up with new takes, we try things that don't work, we try something else that works better, all that stuff. But then we go to the taping, which we will do next week in front of lots of people there in Atlanta. And then we kind of throw it against the wall in the manner of wet spaghetti, i.e. we don't know what's gonna resonate with our panel. We don't know what's gonna resonate with the audience. We don't know what the panel is going to say in response. And a lot of times, and this is, by the way, another reason why it's fun to come see it, because we don't know what's going to happen. And that could be kind of exciting. You know, a lot of times, say, a panelist, say, Paula Poundstone, to take an obvious example, will have some other take that's so strange and so interesting and funny that we sort of, I, and the person there with the script in front of me, I just toss aside all that stuff we worked on and just go with Paula and see where she goes. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. And, and that's also true of all the others. That, and we love that. We always say that if we do a show and it's like 95% our material, i.e. the stuff we all came up with during the week and put in front of me to say, then that's a failure. That's not, we don't want that. We're not doing what, say, John Oliver does, which is delivering brilliantly polished, lengthy monologues directly to an audience every week. That's great. He's brilliant. His writers are, they deserve every Emmy they've gotten and they have all the Emmys. But that's not our show. Our show is an improvisational, spontaneous conversation with some preparation. To that point, the preparation and wondering how much is yours and what writers and producers contribute, something that absolutely amazed me last month was when you had the actor Brian Cox. Yes. One of the most celebrated Shakespearean actors, this great Scottish man, Brian Cox. And you said he's currently elevating swearing into an art form as Logan Roy on HBO's Succession. And then, okay, how do you make this quantum leap to giving him questions about vacuuming, otherwise known as suck sessions. This takes quite a mind, Peter. <laughs> because we're just the goofiest people. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we basically have a nine-year-old sense of humor. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And basically, you know, the whole thing is a joke. And it is entirely charming to have very serious people sometimes. Uh, do these very silly things. It's just what we do. We just come up with the silliest, goofiest thing we can think of that hopefully when we say, because you're X, we're going to ask you about Y and people laugh. That's the only thing we care about. Peter Sagal, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. 
We'll be back in a moment and hear why Peter's most memorable guests tend not to be celebrities. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with Peter Sagal, host of the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The show has had some incredible celebrity guests over the years, especially during its Not My Job segment. But here, Peter explains why it's often the lesser-known guests that tend to be among his favorites. We've been very, very fortunate that we've had some really wonderful people. I will say that sometimes, I mean, we've had some very, very famous people. We've had two presidents, one before he was president, Barack Obama, one after he was president, Bill Clinton. We've had Nobel Prize winners. We've had cabinet secretaries. We've had senators, congressmen, governors. And that's great. And I particularly love when we can take political figures especially, but any major public figure who has a particular reputation for serious work or whatever it may be, and bring them on the show and let them be goofy. I love that. It, to the extent that we are uh, have performing a public service, I think that public service is sometimes we are able to take very well-known people in the news, which can sometimes be a very dehumanizing experience to be in the news, and humanize them. So maybe if you hated, say, I don't know, Bill Clinton, uh, maybe after our interview, you still hate Bill Clinton, but at least you say, oh, he's a human being. So now you're hating a human being, which is a small improvement. All of that said, sometimes I love best the, the people who are not necessarily that well-known, who come on and reveal themselves to be fascinating people. So for example, a few months ago, we just had this guy on who had won the, I don't know, seventh or eighth season of this survival show called Alone, right? Which I believe was on History Network, I think. This is the one where they send people out into the wilderness and they have to be entirely alone until they, whoever stays out longest wins. And this guy was just amazing. He won because he had spent a good part of his life living with this tribe of nomadic elk herders in Siberia. And he had learned their their methods of life. And he used those to win this reality TV show. And I just, I love that. I love the fact that this person, by virtue of, of this strange thing, this reality show had a chance to show the world what he could do. And he had such a remarkable personality and persona and approach to life that I just delighted in talking to him. And it's those people, I think, these days, especially. I mean, I've, I've been very excited to talk to a lot of very famous, well-known people, but I guess I'm old now. And so it's really the interesting people who I wouldn't otherwise ever run into that I get the most excitement from. Oh, I also think that's one of the tenets of NPR is even while you're being entertained, you're learning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we try to. I mean, you know, frankly, you know, what I say to people about who ask, you know, why do you think your show is so successful? After saying, I don't know, I say to them, well, you know, from the very early days, we decided we would just do stuff that we thought was funny and interesting. And we would hope that enough people out there were interested and amused by the same things we were. And it's worked out, you know? I mean, I guess <laughs> enough people out there are the same as us and like to talk to people about the things we like to talk to them about and enjoy hearing the kind of stories we love to hear and enjoying telling the kind of jokes 
that we love to tell. So we're, it's all worked out. Well, hardly the same as you. Peter, your wit travels about the same velocity as the speed of light. <laughs> and what I marvel at, it's surprising that your humor can be both irreverent and so self-effacing at the same time. In November, you posted Peter's Rules of Twitter. Yes. Yes. Now, I should mention for our listeners that you have upwards of 295,000 Twitter followers. I do, much to my... Although, I should point out that Steve Inskeep has about 1.5 million, this son of a... Anyway, but go on. <laughs> hey, he's on more than once a That's week. true. That's true. Okay. So... I was hoping you would talk about Peter's rule number nine. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Would you tell us the difference between insult and mockery? Yeah, rule number, I, I should say just by way of preface that I spend way too much time on Twitter. I'm one of those people. I have analogized the day I first discovered Twitter as to the experience that some alcoholics talk about when they first took a drink, right? They just knew this was not going to end well. And over the years, I have made a lot of mistakes on Twitter. I have said things that I regret. I have, I have expressed aspects of myself that seemed important, but I realized were not that particularly complimentary to me. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've hurt people. I just want to lay that out there. And so just, I don't remember when I started thinking about it, but I started to apply all those lessons that I had learned from error and into a list of principles. And it was mainly self-preservation. I didn't want to make any more mistakes. I didn't want to get into trouble. I didn't want to embarrass my colleagues. I didn't want to embarrass my employer. And so I came up with this list of rules and posted it one day, I think in response to somebody else doing a similar exercise. And now they're pinned on my Twitter follow, my Twitter feed. So if you want to go to at Peter Sagal on Twitter, you can read them for yourself. Number nine, never insult anyone personally. Mockery is fine, but aim it upwards. And the first part of that is the most important, obviously. Never, ever insult anyone personally. Never say you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're obviously a moron, you obviously don't know anything. There's so much of that on Twitter. And one of the things I have noticed is not just my engaging with it, but everybody else engaging with it is it doesn't do anybody any good, ever. It doesn't, certainly doesn't do the person you're insulting any good. Nobody has ever said, well, wait a minute, this stranger has called me a moron. I need to rethink my approach. No, no one has ever done that. They just get angry and insult back. But it doesn't do the person insulting. It doesn't do anybody any good. It just, it just lowers the quality of discussion and raises the temperature and inflames our anger uh, and feeds that, if I can use another addiction analogy, feeds that addiction to adrenaline and rage, which we all deal with and which social media brings out. So I just don't. I just don't insult. I don't say a bad word to anybody, even no matter what they've said to me. If somebody has said something to me that's really awful, I'll either mute them or block them, but I'll never come back at them and say, you're a terrible person for saying that. Kind of, nope, don't do it. <laughs> Mockery, though, is my business. So I had to, I had to figure out a distinction. And, and the distinction is, I think, that Mockery is a way to bring the powerful down to our level, right? And satire, it's a way if somebody is very, 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 very powerful, mockery is a way of, of like making sure that they, and more importantly, we know that they're just another human being, that they're just another, even though they're a senator or president or whatever. And I think that's for our comfort. It doesn't do any good. You know, it doesn't make them behave any better. Otherwise, Ted Cruz would have resigned years ago. But it does help the rest of us say, yeah, he's just another idiot like us. And so that's why I think mockery is okay. See, but you didn't call him an idiot to his face. No. And, and I think that, that I have another rule, which is, it's about a different subject, but it applies, which is the, this, my rule number five, don't say anything about a piece of current writing culture you wouldn't say to the face of the person who created it. And that is... Because of one of, the, we all know this, one of the things that digital media, electronic media, social media does is it breaks down that deeply felt taboo we have against hurting other people. So, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, Lois, but I, I used to. People would write into our show and they say, you're so terrible. How dare you do that? How could you? It's awful. You're terrible. You're the worst. And sometimes I would write back and I would just say something. Oh, I'm sorry that the thing that we said offended you. I'm sorry, Peter. 
And then sometimes I would get this response back and the response was, oh gosh, a real life person read that. Oh, I feel bad. I'm sorry I put it that way. They, people forget that they're actually, even when they're talking to someone online, that they're actually talking to someone. So I think it's really important before you say, oh, this is a piece of garbage and that's a dumb take. And that's just, this person is just doesn't know what they're talking about. Imagine what it would feel like to look that person in the face and say, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a fool. You need to read a book. And most people, I think being essentially decent, would recoil from that. They wouldn't want to do that because there's the, we, we have helpless empathy. We know what it's like to be harassed and insulted. We don't want to do it to other people. Remember that is my message to everybody when you're typing into that little box on Twitter that everybody can read it, including the person you're talking about. Yes, it's very mensch-like. Speaking of mensch-like, I think it's so beautiful that you have Carl Castle listed on the website as emeritus. Oh, yeah. Well, he, as you I'm sure everybody knows, was, was the heart and soul of our show for the first 15 years of its existence. In fact, early on, if anybody can remember back that long to when we were starting out the show in 1998, 99 into 2000, and things were a little tenuous, uh, it was Carl and his gravitas and mainly the affection that public radio listeners had for Carl that kept us going. You know, people's like, well, if Carl Castle's involved, it can't be all bad. And, you know, in fact, it just so happens um, we're packing up to move houses here in the Chicago area. And my wife found some comments I made at Carl's memorial service when he passed away in 2018. And what I said about him then was that he taught me that you should never, ever, ever take for granted the privilege that we have of having an audience. You know, so many people out there would love to have a half of our audience, would love to have a, a, a platform a fraction the size of ours. And if you ever lose sight of how fortunate you are, if you ever start thinking that you deserve it rather than you need to earn it every day, if you start treating your audience as something you just naturally expect because of your brilliance as opposed to an audience that needs to be served in the best and most generous way, then you will quickly lose that audience. And that's the thing, I don't know, Lois, if you ever got to see our show when Carl was on it, but he- I did. But it, I remember, one thing I remember so vividly about Carl was how much fun he had. Mm -hmm. And it was partially because Carl started with our show at the age of 65. So he had already had an entire career. So for him, it was all gravy, you know? But at the same time, he knew inherently how lucky he was to be able to come out on stage and do some jokes and amuse and enjoy and entertain people, that it's just the luckiest thing in the world. And I just try to remember that. I also try to remember to be a Southern gentleman in the way that he was. He never had a harsh word for anybody ever. And I try to live up to that example and often fail. <laughs> well, life will give you many more opportunities. Peter, it has been such a delight. Oh, Lois, always a pleasure to talk to you. Next time, just your grandchild and my son. That's it. That's all we're going to talk about. I love it. And congratulations on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me being nominated for Best Comedy Podcast. Yeah, you never know. There are so many awards out there. Eventually, we'll get one of them. Well, a Peabody's not too bad. Not eh, too bad. But it's been a while, you know. And as my late mother might have said, so what have you won lately? Peter Sagal, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You can see the quiz show live at the Fox Theater in Atlanta this Thursday, March 3rd. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up. We'll revisit my 2018 conversation with one of Wait Wait's fan-favorite panelists, Maz Jabrani. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. 
NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is coming to Atlanta this Thursday for a live performance at the Fox Theater. The Queer Show has been in production since the 1990s and has had an endless stream of talent on its panels, including the hilarious comedian and actor Maz Gerbrani. When Gerbrani was in town for a stand-up show in 2018, he stopped by the WABE studios and shared the story behind his Netflix special, Immigrant. The reason I chose the title Immigrant for that special was because I filmed it um, at the Kennedy Center in D.C. And there was, there's been such anti-immigrant fervor that I just wanted to remind people that immigrants, a lot of us are immigrants. Immigrants love America. We're here because, because we love America. Um, it's not that we're here to, um, you know, do crime and, 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 and be violent. We are a lot of most immigrants I know are successful people that are contributing to the the society in America. And so in the special, uh, for those who haven't seen it, I post a picture of myself from when I first came to America as a kid. And I came from Iran around the time of the revolution. You were a little boy. I was a little boy. I was six years old. And so the reason I put that picture there was just to remind people that all these people that we are pushing against, a lot of them are kids. A lot of them are people looking for a better life. Nobody is in a country going, oh, you know what would be great? If we just sold everything and moved and left. No, it usually happens because there's a war, there's a revolution, there's there's a famine, there's something going on. So that was what was behind all of that with, with, with my immigrant special. So serious stuff beneath this comedy. We have a clip from that immigrant special I would love to play. In this, you've just gone around the room and identified the many nationalities represented in the audience. Guys, listen, the reason I was asking all this, there's a reason, because I want to make a point, okay? There's a lot of people that come from around the world that come to America, we're immigrants, and we love America, all right? We come to America, we love America, right? People need to know. There's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment right now. People need to know that we love America. We come here for a reason. And we contribute, by the way. We contribute to America in many ways, right? We contribute with, with business and, and intellectually in many ways. Even culturally, we contribute. I'm about to contribute to the American culture right now. You ready? I'm going to teach you something. This is, an, this is an Iranian thing that we do. I want you to take it. This is now you can use it, okay? Ed, if you're ever singing a song and you get stuck in that song, I'm going to teach you how to get out of that song. If you don't know the lyrics to a song, all you got to do, all you got to do, la, 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 Yeah. It's an Iranian thing. It gets you out of any song, Ed. Guys, you'll know. If I ever sing the national anthem at a baseball game, you'll know when I'm stuck. I'll be at the baseball games at the Washington Nationals. Oh, say, can you see? Lie, 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 lie. La 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 That's how I will sing the national anthem, and then I will be deported. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly a hope not. Wow, you have a good voice, Moss. I'm all right, thank you for- Did you study? No, I didn't. You know, since I was a kid, since I was 12 years old, I was doing, um, um, we were doing musicals in school, Uh. and I just, I love singing, and, and yeah, you know, every, not every, but a lot of comedians, their fantasy is to be a rock star. Listening to that clip when I saw this, um, I thought, oh, goodness, one more way in which we're so much more closely connected than different. At my temple, we sing, la, 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 you know, when no one knows the Hebrew. Yeah, I mean, the rabbi says, come on, join in. And I'm thinking, 
wait, that's Iranian. Well, of course you have this culture that goes back thousands of years. And, you know, we are all connected. We are also connected. Somebody even pointed out, they go, Simon and Garfunkel, lie, 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 lie. Yes, and they had bar mitzvahs, too. There you go. I mean, come on. Well, you've talked about the many stereotypes you've had to play as an Iranian-American actor. Um on the sitcom Superior Donuts, which you starred in with Judd Hirsch, your character was named Fawz. How is he different from other roles you play? So, you know, I when I first started in my career, earlier in my career, I as an actor of Middle Eastern descent, they start sending you out on auditions and... Um, you at first it was a couple of you know just regular whatever security guard or a guy robbing a store or whatever then it was like oh terrorist and there was another terrorist and another terrorist and then I ended up doing a couple of those and I really felt bad doing it I just didn't like doing it so I told my agents and, and, I, and managers and stuff I said guys I don't want to do any more of these so I have been able to not do any more terrorist parts now Again, being Middle Eastern, there's still going to be a lot of times where people will call you up and go, hey, I got this guy. He's a falafel shop owner. Do you mind playing him? Or there's a cab driver. And in all honesty, I didn't, I didn't mind those as much because, in my opinion, when I, when I go to New York City or when I'm in Los Angeles, I get in a cab. It was A lot of times it was a Middle Eastern guy. When I would go to a falafel place, it was a Middle Eastern guy. I worked as a kid in Marin County, Northern California. I worked in a deli, and the manager was an Arab-American guy. Um, so I think those characters I know, and so I don't mind playing some of those characters. So Superior Donuts, the character I was playing, Foz, was an Iraqi immigrant who was a businessman who had moved to Chicago, bought up a lot of buildings, and was trying to buy the donut shop that, that was owned by Judd Hirsch. Now, in my opinion, even though in the show he would say a lot of inappropriate stuff, he was kind of the Danny DeVito character from Taxi or the Rhea Perlman character from Cheers. It still was a lot. Often it was what I felt like they were giving me a lot of punchlines, which was which was good. Um, and also I talked to the writers about, and they were actually very good about saying, let's not just make it all Iraq centric or Arab centric, um, unless if we're saying like, oh, you Americans are complaining here, you know, back in my country, it's a lot. That stuff is fine. But I thought that they did a pretty good job with this character. The thing that I liked about the character, even though now. As an actor, I want to now, the next character I do, I'd like to do without an accent. I'd like to just do something closer to myself. Um, this character had an accent because he'd moved from Iraq recently. But the thing that I liked about it was every week when we would be on air, when I'd be on Twitter, people would be talking about how enjoy how they were enjoying this character. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, they're watching a character that's Arab-American who has a, you know has an accent, and they're laughing. And subconsciously, I feel like that is endearing immigrants from that part of the world to people in America. Even though I bet there are many people, countless people, who don't even know that if you're from Iran, you're not an Arab. Absolutely. A lot of people don't know that. that, that and, and as a matter of fact, the character that they'd written originally for that show, they'd named him Maz. And so when I went in, I just went and met with him. I said, was it out off of me? And they go, well, no, we use your name, but it was another character, this Iraqi guy we knew. And I said, all right, well, I said, why don't we just make him Iranian? And then the writer said, well, we want him to be from a war-torn country uh, so that he can do li lines like, you know, back where I lived, like you guys, you guys have it so much better here than what I had where I was. And I said, well, Iran was in a war. They were in a war with Iraq. And then one of the writers said, unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't know that. <laughs> I said... I think you're right. So, so. much for post 9-11 right. comedy. Yeah. Maz, you check off quite a few diversity boxes, but that must get tiring for people whose job it is just to be funny or who just want to act. Do you ever wish you could drop politics and just tell jokes absolutely as a matter of fact it's funny you say that because people and when i get interviews sometimes people will go what's your what's your goal as a comedian what are you trying to do like they and i think they're leading towards the political goal and i say no i go my number one goal is to be funny that's what anyone's goal is as a comedian you want to be funny now if i can if i can have a message underneath my comedy then i feel that that's going to another level i feel that that's the guys that i want to emulate like the richard priors and the george carlins that's what they were doing um so 
you know, uh, be honest with you, during the Obama uh, era, I didn't have as many political things going on. Um, and also my kids, I have two young kids now, seven and nine. So they were born when Obama came in. So there was a lot of kid material going on. So my, my material probably did go a little bit away from politics. And so even if people see my show or even if you watch the immigrant special, there's sections of the special where I'm doing family stuff, there's political stuff, and then there's just silly stuff. So uh, I like all of them and I continue to do all of them. Comedian Maz Chobrani from our conversation in 2018. You can hear my entire interview with the comedian, actor, and wait, wait, don't tell me panelist on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., author Britt Bennett shares the inspiration behind her novel, The Vanishing Half, an unforgettable tale of family and identity. Plus, we'll hear about the current exhibition at the Carlos Museum, titled, And I Must Scream. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.